following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. As we pick up in John 6, we move into what is mostly an elaboration by Jesus, a discourse that arose about his feeding of the 5,000, and it's known as the Bread of Life Discourse. It's lengthy. There are quite a few layers of meaning here that we could spend much time on, and I'm not even reading the whole thing. I'm going to read a part of it and then skip a dozen verses and then read some more And I will hope next time to come back to that middle portion that I skip over. But listen to this mostly a dialogue from Jesus with skeptics, with people who had questions, as we find him here. John 6, 25 is where we are. Follow along. When they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you would believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now I'm going to jump over a section and bring you down to verse 48 and read a little further on the same subject. At verse 48, I am the bread of life, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me also will live because of me. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, not like the bread your fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Father, we know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but may we see, demonstrated by your Spirit speaking today, that the word of our God indeed abides forever. Amen. I've heard a story more than once told by preachers as one of these sort of apocryphal sermon illustrations, and you wonder, did it really happen? But it's certainly believable enough. The story says that in the early 20th century, a Scotsman, we choose Scotsmen, you see, because they're like people from Lancaster County. They don't like to spend money. And uh, this Scotsman booked a passage on a steamship to come to America. He was a laborer. He didn't have much. And he wanted to find a new start in the world. He didn't have a family. So he thought he needed to hoard every penny and get himself transitioned to America and a new job. He bought the cheapest ticket he could for this ship. And he thought, well, I'll need to save my money on the ship, so I'll pack my food so I won't have to pay for food. And he packed a box with some fruit in it and bread and cheese and crackers and dried meat and so on. And he ate that food in a couple weeks' voyage across the ocean. But as he was still not yet at New York, the ship was a couple days out from its destination. That food was running low. He was getting pretty sick of it, and some of it was even spoiling or getting a little rancid. And he thought, all right, I guess I can afford to spend a little bit. Maybe I'll splurge on a couple of hot meals before the ship docks. So he visited the dining hall of the ship for the first time. And what he saw just made his eyes nearly pop out of his head as there were buffet tables loaded with meat and vegetables and fruit and bread and desserts and so on. He just looked at this and he thought, oh my goodness, this has got to be horribly expensive. So he spoke to the steward who was there at the door going into the dining hall, and he said, Steward, please, uh, what is this going to cost me to eat here? And the steward looked at the man a little bit startled and said, Sir, you're a passenger on this boat, right? Yes, of course. Well, don't you understand? All of this food has been included in your ticket, and you have every right to eat in this dining hall all you wanted every day that you've been on this ship. Here was a man ignorant of what was his by right who suffered unneeded hunger and certain amount of deprivation just because he had that spiritual ignorance of not taking advantage of what could be his. And I say there are many like him in the realm of spiritual things today. 
Most of John 6 builds on that miracle of feeding the 5,000, and we do call it the bread of life discourse. It has a certain good amount of redundancy and repetition. Some of the same lines, Jesus says the same thing. You probably noticed a half a dozen different ways, really bringing the lesson through and asserting, I am the bread of life in all of these different ways that he speaks about it. He's speaking about, of course, attaining satisfaction not just by having your belly full from a good meal, but finding that kind of satisfaction that puts your soul at rest and your mind at peace and founds you in a knowledge of assurance of your standing with God. And I tell you that in relation to those things, the world is full of famished people today, spiritual famine, people who don't know what it is they need or want except that they need something. They're starved for fulfillment, and they're not finding it. Maybe the answer to it will be technology, and so we run to every technological development that comes along, and we're stuffed full of technology. My wife and I are considering buying a couple of devices which are probably devices now about to be replaced. That's the way we buy technology. Maybe some of you are with us. You know, it's got to be around for a while and become familiar and be a little bit proven. We're not going to run after the first thing that comes out on the market. We're entertained to death. How many different ways can we get movies and sports and everything else today, 24 hours a day? Possessions. I had occasion to walk through the Park City Mall this past week. I had to try to recollect when I had last been there. I'm not saying this to brag. It's just a statement of fact. I think it had been two years. I go past the Park City Mall all the time, and I had to go in there to get something for somebody else, not myself. And I thought as I was walking through, as I saw hundreds of people, it was a midday afternoon, I thought, gee, look at all these people. I bet every day there's this many people in the mall. What are they here for? What do they need that's here? I can't think of anything that I need in this place. If somebody told me, here, here's an unlimited amount of money. Go buy everything in this mall that you want. I wouldn't know what to buy. Not anything I need, that's for sure. And yet, the mall's full. There's hunger. People are filling it with things. Entertainment. Relationships. Sex. Anything you can think of. A dull and constant ache inside of people says, feed me with something. Don't you love, you know, when you want to dash into the convenience store, maybe you're paying cash for your gas or you just have to pick up something and and you just want to shove the money and, and get the change. And in front of you with the only clerk in the store is the person who's buying 47 different varieties of lottery ticket. Oh. And I must admit, I have sinful thoughts towards that person. Why are you wasting your money? I want to preach to them. And, of course, I'm irritated because they're wasting my time, too. Why are you pursuing the vain dream that somehow you're going to win the $100 million prize? Let me tell you, if you want it, it will not, I promise you, give you the satisfaction that you think it would. There's an older hymn that was sort of haunting my mind this week. 
that states the case for what I'm saying in a, a memorable verse. It says this, feeding on the husks around me till my strength was almost gone. Longed my soul for something better, only still to hunger on. And then I realized that while that hymn goes back into the 19th century, the great theologian Mick Jagger (laughs) said it more bluntly, I can't get no satisfaction, though I try and I try and I try. And that's where people live. God's word in Amos 8.11 predicted this situation. Back in that ancient time, the Lord spoke through the prophet Amos and said, Behold, a day is coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine, not a famine of bread, not a thirst of water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord, and people will wander from sea to sea, from north to east, running to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, and they will not find it. We know today they can run to and fro from so-called houses of worship and still not find it too many times. If you're a person who has some sense that you do comprehend what I'm talking about with this inward hunger for God, I have some satisfying truth from Jesus Christ that you need to hear and you need to feed upon. First, as we look at John 6, 25 to 29, this section could easily be titled, Food That Perishes. That's the title Jesus gave. He said, don't labor for food that perishes. He was saying, don't go after things that at very best have a short-term shelf life. They spoil if you don't consume them. And even if you do consume them, you'll be wanting more soon after you do consume those things. And he said this because these people approaching him, who had been part of that miracle of feeding 5,000, were coming to him with their material desires. We ate with you one day, Jesus. Feed us again. Show us something more. And they were asking a fundamental religious question here. What must we do to do the works of God? That's the basic question of religion. Religion is man reaching toward God somehow or other. It's not God reaching towards man. It's man reaching towards God. And they were saying, okay, we want to be religious. Tell us what we have to do. Give us the guidebook. Give us the rules. Tell us the ritual. And we'll be doing and doing and doing until we get it right. And maybe God will be happy with us. Well, biblical salvation, I hope you know, is not about doing. It's not even about religion, really. It's about taking hold of what God has done. It's realizing that by his grace, God requires of us the radical discovery that nothing we do ultimately carries any merit. Salvation is the gift of God. All that we actually do is confess our bankruptcy and our need and throw ourselves upon the unmerited favor of God and on the work that he's done at the cross of Christ and in the resurrection of Christ. Notice verse 29 here. Jesus did answer the question, what should we do? He said, all right, you want to know? The work of God is for you to do what? Believe 
on him whom he has sent. Your faith in Christ is the one crucial work that you can do. And even that, of course, if we want to study it and get into it, the faith itself is God's gift and and God enables us to have it. We were created to enjoy a deeply satisfying relationship to God himself, but our sin disastrously ruined, broke that relationship. Jesus Christ came into the world, God and man in one person, to restore that relationship by dying our death and rising to a new life. And so faith in him is the root of true religion because it reverses our standing. It brings us back to God from whom we were estranged. So trusting in Christ isn't doing something for God. It's taking hold of what God has done in Christ. I was thinking of an illustration of how we often act in getting mixed up and putting religion where an acceptance of God's grace should be. And maybe this won't work with you, but it did for me anyway. Imagine that you knew a couple that had a lavish home and they became friends with you. And the wife was a gourmet chef, made her living as a chef. And they invited you for dinner, said, come on over, we want to prepare dinner for you. So you came to their home and sat down at a beautifully set table with linen tablecloth and everything, and you knew this was going to be a special meal, and sure enough, it was. One course after another came with French sauces and things you couldn't even pronounce, but you knew they sure tasted good. And you just enjoyed every bite of that meal, including the wonderful dessert at the end. And then you spoke up and said, wow, this has just been a great evening. Thank you so much for having us, and I don't know when we've enjoyed a better meal, but I have some idea what a meal like this would have cost in the restaurant. So here, I'm going to put $50 right beside my plate to, to thank you and try to pay you for this great meal you've given. Would you do that as a guest in somebody's home? I say, of course I wouldn't. I was invited there as a guest. It was an act of grace. They wanted my fellowship. They wanted to bestow this meal on me. Why would I pay them for it? Well, the shocking thing is that we're just that rude with God. When we look at the gift he's given us in Jesus, his son at the cross and the resurrection, and we say, all right, God, what do we need to do now? I'm sure there must be something. You know, you did your part. I'll do my part. How many times have you heard that blasphemy from a Christian pulpit? Religion is 50% what God has done and 50% what you've done. Nonsense. It's all of grace. All of grace. We simply take hold of God's wonderful grace. Don't labor for the food that perishes. Secondly, we go to verses 30 to 35 here. And this section introduces food that endures forever. By the way, I... I'm not emphasizing it that much today, but this is the first of the I am sayings of Jesus in John. John's gospel has a series of these. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd and so on. I am the bread of life is the first of those. And I'll say a little bit more about those sayings in context of this gospel at a later time. But Jesus comes here and says, let's talk about food that endures forever. I am the bread of life. I am true bread from heaven. Again, the the rudeness and the ignorance of these people who are pursuing Jesus here is just about amazing. You know, 
they come to him when he says what they have to do is believe in him. Then, then they turn it and say, all right, we'd like to believe in you, but you need to give us something more. What great sign are you going to do so that we can believe in you? You want to say, what? Weren't you people in on lunch 24 hours earlier where you consumed everything that could satisfy your stomach, miraculously produce, and you're now begging for a wonderful work? Are you kidding? What do you people need anyway? What an unreasonable demand this is. And then, of course, they pull out the Old Testament. Of course, they knew the Old Testament. It's good that they did. And they refer to Exodus 16 when a wonderful food substance was delivered by God in what you could call one of the most extensive miracles of the Old Testament, the giving of manna. You know, maybe the opening of the Red Sea or raising someone from the dead is a, is a particularly spectacular miracle. It, it is, certainly if we saw it. But you had to say for extensiveness, for length and breadth, the giving of manna. For decades, as Israel wandered in the wilderness, six days a week, a substance that was found on the desert floor that was delicious, very tasteful, very nutritious, supplied their need, and certainly appeared because one day a week it didn't appear. You know, if anybody said, well, I think that just grows there. No, it didn't just grow there. One day a week it didn't grow there. God gave this. But now you see these people are coming and saying, Moses did a great miracle. Jesus, can you out-miracle Moses? He gave manna, and people ate and ate and ate and ate and ate. You expect us to be impressed that you fed us for one day? Jesus, in effect, says to them, look, folks, what Moses could not give you was something that would satisfy your soul in a lasting and eternal way. Don't forget, you had to eat that manna every day or you'd be hungry. It was food that perished. And the people who ate it actually perished. It didn't give them eternal life. Now I tell you that that miracle of manna was nothing but a prelude or call it a trail marker, if you will, pointing to me, the true bread from heaven. I'm reading, I was reading a really long book not long ago, and it had a wonderful preface written by, of course, often the preface is not written by the author. And I read the two-page preface and then the huge voluminous book that was kind of more boring than the preface, and I found myself leafing through it that. But you know what? The miracle of the manna was just the preface. Jesus was the whole volume of what God had to say on the bread of life, and he wasn't boring, by the way. The manna was just a miracle that opened the door for the real feeding that God intended to do through his son. And he was saying here, look, true bread from heaven is not a thing that you pick up in the desert. It's a person. It's me. I am the bread of God. Come to me and embrace me by faith, and you will understand how to be fed for eternity. Now, there's a lot more we could say, but I want to bring in this this latter portion of verses 48 to 59 in the third place today. And this, I think, is is the real crux of the matter. As It it sounds like Jesus, I, I wouldn't blame you if you heard me read what I read and you said, boy, Jesus is just sort of saying the same thing over 
and over. But there's a movement in verses 48 to 59 that's not in the earlier part. And if I label this point, I would call it this. Feeding on Christ means trusting in his death. Because you see what begins to happen after verse 48, especially uh, I think the place where, where it really turns is verse 51. When Jesus says the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 53, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Verse 55, my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. And maybe you say, like some people have, gee, that's crude. That's, it's actually kind of shocking. Why, why would somebody say, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood? That's brutal. And in fact, misunderstanding of that led people in the time of the earliest Christians, Romans, looked upon and mocked the Christians, and they said, do you understand those Christians are actually cannibals? They talk about drinking the blood of their leader, and they were mocked for that. Well, we say he did say it, didn't he? What did he mean? Of course he wasn't speaking literally, but he was speaking to put an unmistakable emphasis upon his death when he spoke about flesh and blood. It's death that jumps off the page when he says those things. And what he's telling us is that it's not simply a matter of faith in Christ, the person who actually lived, but faith in the real death of Christ as the sin bearer for the world. That is the crux. It's the effects of his death on a Roman cross as the substitute and the sin bearer. That's where faith has to single out Jesus of all other objects and wrap him in a bear hug. It's his death we believe in and his death that we trust in, you see. Now, be warned of something, and I could address this with a long thing, but it's just going to be a couple sentences. This eating and drinking of Christ is not about the Lord's Supper. If you've heard sermons on this passage that said, aha, here's a call for you to come to the Lord's table where his blood and his flesh are represented. I don't think the Lord's Supper is in view here at all, and I'm not alone. That's That's a misinterpretation of this passage. People can come to receive the elements of the Lord's table, which of course are important, which of course are given to us by Jesus himself at a later time. And that's one of the interesting things, that the Lord's Supper wasn't even given at the time he was speaking this year. And they can pass through that ritual and receive the bread and receive the cup in a cold and ritualistic way and walk away thinking, ah, I've done something for God. They've done nothing. Unless their heart, their soul is invested in him by faith. This is talking about partaking of Christ by our faith. And yes, it uses attention-getting words. You know, bread is, is called, sometimes it's been called the staff of life. It's, it's among the most basic food that there is. It's food that is basically suitable for all people. A little infant, maybe only a couple months old, can start chewing bread, even if you're gumming it to death, you know. And 
seniors who also don't, you know, we, we start out without teeth and we end up without teeth, you know. Seniors way up there who can't hardly partake any other food can, can eat some soft bread. And it's nourishing, provided it's not all bleached out flour. If it's good flour, it's nourishing to people of all ages. It's a universal food. Christ is universal food. Those who feed on him by trusting him of any age receive the benefits, the nourishment, the strengthening, the power of his life in their life. And that's why Jesus used these graphic images of eating and drinking. What do we do when we eat and drink nourishing things? Not junk food, but the good stuff, the stuff that I don't always like, you know, my my wife will tell you. We take into our bodies, we assimilate into our cells at the cellular level. You scientists could wax eloquent on this. These nutrients that are digested, that pass into the chemicals of our blood, that build us up, that put iron and vitamins and everything that we need into our bodies so that we grow and we remain strong. This all happens, you see, at the, at the most intimate level of nutrients becoming part of us. Have you ever thought about what wheat goes through to become bread? Planted in the ground around this time of year, sometime like this. Let it grow to a certain stage. Watch it. Be careful that you harvest when you need to. You cut it down. You crush it, you grind it, you bake it hot, and you've got one of the world's most delectable things when it comes out of the oven, fresh, hot bread. Nothing's better. Even broccoli's not better. (laughs) Do you know that what happens to wheat is what happened to Jesus? There's a place where he calls himself a corn of wheat dropped into the ground alone. He also grew up. They cut him down. They ground him fine. He was exposed to the hot fires of the wrath of God for sin by becoming the sin bearer on my behalf and your behalf. And now he who passed through all that offers to come and become part of you as you are united to him. Notice what verse 56 says here. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. We're unified now. The son of the living God who became flesh becomes one with us. His life is my life. His power is my power. His righteousness is my righteousness. My sin is taken away by him, you see. That's what he's talking about here. What an offer when he says, Feed on me and abide in me. You see, Christ without the cross, without his death, this might be a shocking statement, but I'll say it. Christ without the cross brings no eternal benefit to you. If your idea of believing in Christ is I'm believing in the world's greatest moral teacher or the world's greatest teacher, period, or the world's great ethical standard or the world's wisest philosopher, I'm sorry, That may benefit you a little bit, but it won't benefit you eternally. The benefit of Christ that is lasting and eternal and satisfying is the benefit of trusting and becoming one with him 
in his cross. That's what Paul was talking about in that wonderful text of Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. And listen, I no longer live, that is, independently of him. But Christ lives in me, Paul said. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the strength of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me because I'm feeding on him. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. Ultimate fulfillment. You can't get it anywhere else, folks. I don't care what your economic standing is, and I'm well aware that I speak to people at all levels of the economic scale here. Go buy yourself a new car. It'll be great for a while. It even smells great for a while. And you're driving around, boy, this car is brand new. It doesn't have any knocks, any pings. It doesn't have a scratch on the finish. This is just great. Well, somewhere not too far down the road, you're going to have a big bill for that car. I guarantee you. Go to a fine restaurant, have an enjoyable meal, come out of there groaning, oh, I ate too much, but boy, was it good. I guarantee you, you're going to be hungry tomorrow. You're going to eat again. You're going to need to eat again. Build yourself a fine home in the location where you most want to be, maybe a country spot on a hillside overlooking a beautiful valley, design the house, make it exactly the way you want, sit down with a professional landscaper, set it all up so it looks just right, get your interior decorator, make that your perfect home. Perfect. How long will it be perfect? Until the roof needs replacing, the hot water heater goes, the carpet's worn out. You know how it is. There's no perfect satisfaction in this world. Jesus Christ, who offered his body and blood for you, promises to satisfy you with eternal peace with God, life that is actually everlasting in nature, wisdom, growing trust in him throughout this entire life. He is true bread from heaven to sustain God's people so that we might be vibrantly alive for all eternity. God, our Father, thank you for this wonderful text, this image of Jesus that is not just a a beautiful image, but really is true. Many of us could say yes and amen. He is the satisfier. I pray, O oh God, for people that are feeding on the husks around them, and their strength is almost gone. Would you point them to the food that lasts forever? Would you establish us upon him who lasts, him whose benefits stay and continue by your very own power throughout eternity? Thank you for Christ, the living bread. Amen.